0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I am joined by Professor Arneka Nubia, who is a pioneering and internationally recognized historian, writer, and presenter, who is reinventing our perceptions of the Renaissance, British history, Black studies, and intersectionalism. Professor Nubia is the leading historian on the status and origins of Africans in pre-colonial England from antiquity to 1603. He has developed entirely new strands of British history, which includes Africans in ancient and medieval England. He is also an expert on the diversity in Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, and Edwardian England slash Britain. He has also helped academia and the general public to an entirely new perspective on other, otherness, colonialism, imperialism, and the Black British contribution to World Wars I and Two. He is also an internationally renowned speaker and has been a keynote presenter at venues such as the House of Parliament, the National Portrait Gallery, and the National Portrait Gallery of Scotland. He has been a presenter at universities in both the UK and the United States of America. He has also been a consultant and presenter for the television series, including the BBC's History Cold Case, Episode 1, Series 1, The Ipswich Man, and Channel 4, Skeletons of the Mary Rose. And Crosswell Discovery, London's Lost Graveyard. Today, yeah. Professor Nubier is going to be discussing with me his wonderful book, England's Other Countrymen. Professor Nubier, thank you for joining me today.
0: Hello, good afternoon. Oh, good morning.
1: <laughs> so, can you good tell good us? Morning.
0: Well, actually, <laughs> is it morning there?
1: it's actually afternoon here. So, we're in the afternoon now. So, we'll take that. I mean, yeah. Can you tell evening us? evening here. So... <laughs> oh, you're going into the evening? Oh, I you yeah know, it's still, my Oh wow! <laughs> so let us get this going. Can you tell us a little bit about the book?
0: Okay, so when we're talking about the book, I think we're talking about the second book in a series. Um, this book called Um uh, Black Tudor Society, or a uh, second book from the first, uh, which is called Black and War: Africa's Intruders in Their Present Status and Origin. Really, both books work together. The first book, um, published in 2013 and re again in 2040, yes, almost 10 years ago, uh, chronicles the presence, state, and origin of Africans in Tudor England with a reflection on Africans being present in other parts of Western Europe during the period that's often called the Early Modern Period. This is a period of time between 1485, or the beginning of the 15th century, and um, in this case, the 1600, 1660. England's Other Countrymen, Black Childish Society, continues that same theme, examining the African presence, status, and origins in England between 1485 and the 1660s. Primarily, both books use primary sources written at the time by white english people so in this sense the book differs from many books that we now see on ethnicity which are often ideas theories and practices based on the 21st century looking back instead these are not these are source books that people can use for evidence-based research And then the theoretical and narratives that come from it are fundamentally supported by evidence um, uh, from the period in time in question written by white English people. So um, these books have been used um, as source material to reshape our understanding of diversity in English history, hitherto, It had been postulated that the further back you go in time, the weaker the social, political, economic, and cultural position of Africans in the diaspora might be, or that Africans were not present outside of Africa before the enslavement process, which is often called the transatlantic slave trade. What these books do is proof that there was an African presence that existed in Europe and in other parts of the world hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years prior to the enslavement process known as the transatlantic slave trade. And moreover, that this African presence were not all um, treated as, nor categorized as, nor having the status of being enslaved, and that many of these African people had position status in Western Europe and in other parts of the world, and they had interactions with the local populations and community, and even helped to shape the way in which um, many European nations developed in this period of time. Interesting Question.
1: How did you become interested in the topic? So, um I became interested in this topic in
0: 1985. In 19 my mistake, in 1983. We get this correct. In 1983 I began in mentioning this topic because I was at that time being taught and um, William Shakespeare's or fellow, uh, and um there's really another play called Titus Andronicus. And a third play called, what's it called now? Not What You Do About Nothing. Um, I can't remember what the third play but I, Oh, Merchant of Venice. So in these three plays, the Merchant of Venice, Titus Andronicus, and Othello, and in another play called The Tempest, there are characters who have an African heritage. In Othello, there is of course Othello, and Othello is a nobleman. He is someone who raised himself up to the position of being one of the head council of the ten. Council of the ten are the people that make decisions um, regarding the safety and the protection of Venice. And I thought well, how interesting it is that this character um, of Othello exists in a 16th century. You know, why is Othello an African? Uh, Why is his blackness very visible, uh, very obvious? Uh, Why is he described in a derogatory way uh, by Iago and one or two of the other characters? Uh, And why does he have this position uh, within Venetian society? Is this art imitating life? And does this story reflect not just upon the fiction of Venetian society, but that's with effect upon English society. Then there's this other character called Aaron in a play by William Shakespeare called Titus Andronicus, which is actually set in third century Rome, but is a Renaissance play, nevertheless. And Aaron, again, had a degree of agency, even though he is the principal villain in the story. He has considerable agency. In fact, he's the mover and the shaker. um within the play and uh, you know the probably i think the most enigmatic of any other character um as uh, whether you know uh, be uh, potentially the most intelligent uh, and the most skillfully cunning of those characters and then there is the prince of marco or the moorish um, ambassador in the merchant of venice who has a much smaller part but nevertheless a visible part and then uh, the fourth character is caliban whose mother is described as coming from Arguin, Arguin being a place in North Africa. His father's parentage is, isn't mentioned. Alibad is often depicted in a, um artistically creative way, shall we say, um, as a beast-like figure, uh, where his ethnicity is sort of subsumed within the sort of beastly characteristic. But in the story, he's described as having his North African heritage. So I thought, why is it that these four characters exist and why, in Shakespeare's plays do we see constant references to people of African descent in Romeo and Juliet, you know, rich Julian and Ethiopia, um, uh, in other plays, the references, you know, to black men being uh, like beauteous pearls in Lady eyes. You know, th- we have these terms and references. And these terms and references are just terms of art. They are just chromatic definitions of opposite black and white. These terms are often related to ethnicity and they're related to the ethnicity that is connected to Africa. So I thought that with all of these fictional characters that populate Renaissance playing, perhaps that they are reflective of an African presence in England. And I thought that way back in nineteen eighty-three, but I had no evidence to support such a notion. Then in nineteen eighty-six I came across a book, fantastic book. Um, called I think it, the the title was The Black Presence in London. It was created by an organization called the GLC, Greater London Council, organization that doesn't exist anymore. It was a left-leaning uh, organization um, that was heavily trying to promote Black history, especially in the suburbs and uh, many of the cities of London. And this book called The Black President in London was a fantastic book. It was only about thirty or forty pages but it was fantastic because it contained evidence for a pre-18th century African population. Albeit that this evidence was rather scanty. the evidence was nevertheless left there. And within this evidence, I saw the first reference to three important documents. Uh, these documents were two letters, one written on the 11th of July, 1596, another, a letter written on the 18th of July, 1596, and a draft proclamation written in 1601. Now, this book, called The Black Presence in London, mistakenly claims that these documents were written by Elizabeth I. But the important point is that they contain evidence for an African presence. The documents talk about that the uh, Queen Elizabeth is disconcerted, to, to note um, that there are so many black moors and they use the term Negroes who are part of the population of England at that time. And many of them have come to England because of the conflict against Spain and that this African presence um, in fostered and powered is the term uh, in England. And that they have, you know, a position of status of, and that they also, rather contradictory, in a rather contradictory way, take the relief that is meant for England's lead subject. So this was the first time I found these three documents. Even, so even though the book didn't really describe the context that these documents fit within, it was the first reference that I had to these documents. This enabled me, from 1986, to go on and find the original sources so in 1987, 1988, um, it took me two years, uh, but I went and found in the National Archive the original document that was sourced in this book. In addition, um, I, what I then began to do, on 1988, is began to think, okay, well, these documents claim that Africans, you know, all over the country are a threat, are a danger. And I wanted to find out if they were a significant danger um uh, or uh where whether that they were you know just portrayed as such you know how many people of African descent were living in England were they just living in Port Town like Bristol, um uh, uh, London? Um where you know where were they? You know, who were they? You know, what was their presence? What was their status? And what were their origins? So I spent from 1988 all the way up till now, uh, conducting this research, uh, for sometimes for a whole periods of a year, I didn't find anything despite doing research for a whole year. I might go to um, a town or a city and look at their parish record and then um, the next day do the same thing. I would do that consistently uh, through a whole year uh, in the midst of, all the other work that I had to do, because this was work that I wasn't being paid for. Uh so I was doing this, fitting this in with my regular, you know, day job. And and yet yeah, I might do all of that research for a whole year and not find anything. No, no, no sources, no evidence at all. Um and, and so sometimes that would be at the end of the year, there would be that feeling of despondency. Perhaps these people don't take Yeah. Uh, then I began to reassess my perspective on this. Uh, since this was research at that stage that i was doing that up to that moment nobody else was really doing it. in 1988 and i know we're no one else really doing it, this kind of research looking at africans in tudor um england uh, tudor and early Stuart england people had looked at the georgian population in the 18th century and the 19th century but they hadn't looked um, at the 15th or 16th century so i was having to make my own structures here and my own framework then i had a sort of revelation um this is my first revelation uh, the first revelation was that i was looking in the wrong place um uh, but, but i was uh, looking in the wrong city the wrong town uh, and the wrong place and i began to reassess the way that i was looking because at that moment in 1988 1989 i had been looking for africans in metropolitan cities, metropolitan cities that were such and that existed in the 18th and the 19th century. So, for example, I've done quite a lot of research in Liverpool, uh, Manchester, uh, Birmingham, Leeds, thinking that, okay, because these are big cities now, and they are cities where people of Africa can be sent now are a significant presence, that these would be the same cities that in the 16th century, Africans would be it. Of course, this is a mistaken idea, because Birmingham, Manchester, uh, Liverpool, and Leeds were tiny villages in the 16th century, in which very few people lived. So I said, "Okay, let me start again, let me start again. What were the big towns, cities, in Elizabethan England, in Tudor England? It is there that I need to do, start my research. So the big towns uh, and cities in England were places like London, places like Bristol, places like Norwich, um, uh, places like Portsmouth. Um, uh, these sorts of places were the places, the, the, the big town. Um, uh, and when I um uh, Salisbury was another um, uh, big town at the time. So when I then reassessed my perspectives, this meant that I now targeted the big towns, the big city that existed in Tudor England. This produced phenomenal results because when I began to look into the records, the Bristol record, the Salisbury record, um, London record, Altma record, uh, I began to find Africa. Um, inside the parish record of these big towns, the big city in in Tudor society. And uh, it it didn't matter whether they were port towns, some of them could be landlocked. Um, The point was that these were the big towns and the big city of Tudor society, and it is there that I found the population. Now, within places, if we take somewhere, so we take somewhere like... um, 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 Plymouth. Plymouth uh, is not a very big town, I'm oh, sorry, Plymouth is a big town now, but it's not a big, sorry, it's a big city now, but it's not a big city like Manchester or Birmingham or Liverpool or Leeds. And yet, Plymouth at this time was a major town, a major city in Tudor England. Plymouth was the centre of trade. <laughs> excuse me, uh, Plymouth was the centre of trade. so... In Tudor society, Plymouth was the second-largest city, excuse me, Plymouth was the second-largest city um, for the African present in England after London. So this was remarkable. This is not what I was expecting, but it helped to illustrate that, indeed, this present um, was strong. So the largest conurbation of African presence in Tudor England were London, Plymouth, Bristol, places like Exmouth, also um, uh, in the west in the west of England, and places like Salisbury. And then there would be other towns and villages um, uh, such as Holt, um, uh, Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, um, uh, and places of that of that nature. So the Af- the important thing is. That the African presence in Tudor England is to be found all over the country. Yes, it is to be found all over the country in villages and, town, uh, and, ta- uh, and towns and cities throughout the country. But the concentration of Africans was not in the same places that the later African presence was to be found in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century. This uh, was truly remarkable, and, um, and uh, I began to record what I'd found. Um, I began to record. And initially, how I recorded this pattern was as individual, with individual entry. Harris' records were created, uh, most of them from the 1550s onwards. Unfortunately, we don't have good records for the first part of the Tudor period, from 1485 to the 1550s so the records are are skewered towards the 1550s onwards and i initially approached the records from a statistical perspective recording individual entry and that's what they were initially you know to me just individual entry like john a blackamoor was buried here 1562 you know mary um a blackamoor um uh died um of the play you know sixteen oh one um uh daisy um a a, a black and more child was baptized here fifteen eighty four you know they are a of record and they were just individual entry then in about 1992, dude i I began to relate, or move away from this the the, the collection of statistical data towards trying to work out how some of these data could be grouped together. Did some of these entries in these parish records relate to individuals, couples, families, community? And that's where my research really took off.
1: Wow, that was quite a journey that you undertook. So I can only imagine how challenging the research process was for you. But as you were going through your research and finding out information, how did, were you able to determine like how blacks actually arrived in Tudor society?
0: Right. Good. So the, the, the key thing was that I had this perspective. um, Because I've been influenced by post-colonial and theory, post-colonial, um, uh, uh, practice, post-colonial, um, uh, systems of, um, thinking of, uh, African presence, certainly in the diaspora. And indeed, the post-colonial practice does have a lot of positive contribution, but in this case, it wasn't helpful. And this post-colonial practice tells the narrative that Africans in the diaspora, primarily, that the encounter was one of enslavement, um, was primarily one of, of of servitude or in servitude primarily one of inscription primarily one in which the African subject was an object um, to be utilized and used by European nations uh, and that tends to be the philosophy the narrative that is given and that's the idea that I had so as far as I was concerned people that I was researching from 1988 all the way up until 1997 I, I was convinced that these people were slaves, were enslaved people and that the records were the records of their masters uh, referring to their enslaved people and uh, and that idea was the predominant idea and therefore that these people had been brought on slave ship uh they've been brought by force um uh, they were kept in england and another part of europe by force, uh they were treated abominably um Uh, and that they effectively lived nasty, brutish, and short lives. That was my idea. And I believe using those three documents that I mentioned earlier, you know, the two letters and the proclamation, I was of the opinion that these documents proved that these people were enslaved and proved that these people had an inferior position. And I had the idea that this was where modern racism began. It began in the 16th century, you know, with John Hawkins, you know, and um, uh, and Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh, you know, with their slave um, trading um, expeditions, and this is where the whole idea of Western European racism and slavery uh, began in the 16th century, and that it continued in an unbroken line from the 16th century all the way up till now. That was my idea, and and and, and I kept trying to fit the individuals the couples, the families, and the communities that I was discovering throughout the country into that prison, you know, so that even from 1996 to 2007, a further 10, 11 years, I still kept trying to create these individuals, couples, family, community into this prison. Now, in about 2007, (laughs) I think it was, uh, a colleague of mine called Imitate's Habit, who had actually started doing his research, I think slightly later than me, um, published his book um, on the African uh, Um he, taking some, he had done some of the similar research because what I didn't know is that he was actually doing some similar research that I was doing at the same time, even though he had started slightly later. His book um, I, I think it, the imprint of the, the imprint, something called the imprint of the something, the imprint of black or the invisible black presence or something. In his book, he said unequivocally that the people, the African people in Tudor and at his society were enslaved. That's the narrative that he had. And in fact, because he was so strong on his narrative, it made me question my narrative. And I thought, okay, he's telling me so strongly, but the evidence that he's presenting and the evidence that I've found doesn't support that narrative. Let me go back and question that narrative. So I went back, I went back, again and again and again and again, and researched again and again and again where the, the the records that contained these people I'm about the Plymouth record that uh, examined, you know, where, where you know these applicants were in the records, you know. What does the record say about them? You know, um, what did it say about their 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 data? What did it establish about their status? I went to the records and couldn't put off without Allgate, which is a parish in central London near Tower Hamlet. You know, you know where we see Mary Phyllis of Mosco, you know, or Christopher Capabet, you know, they're both described as Bath What did it say about their state? I went to the records by Henry Anthony Jetto in Holt in Worcestershire. What does it say about them and their, you know, their connection to society? I, um, I went back to John O'Commy's record in Hertfordshire, and I said, you know, what you know, what do those records tell us about John O'Connor in Hertfordshire? Uh, I went to the African Maiden, who were the uh, host of the town in Edinburgh, uh, and were the object of celebration during the Black Lady Day, um, or the celebration of the Black Night, where King James the 4th, King James the 4th of Scotland, dressed up as a wild or black knight and serenaded the two women, uh, one called Anne Blackmore, another called Helen Blackmore, two African women uh, who had been um, uh, somewhat kidnapped and brought to Scotland Um, um, by um, uh, a Scottish privateer um, and lived most of their life in Scotland um, and were treated as part of the royal court. So the prism and the narrative of enslavement didn't fit what the evidence was saying. So the narrative was going ahead of the evidence instead of being led by the evidence. So I said, "Let, let, let me start again. I said, I think I, I think it has got the status bit wrong. I think the post-colonial historians who've spoken about this, if they've spoken about them at all, have got it wrong. I think almost everybody that's written about these people has got it wrong. And I said, let me be led by what the evidence logically suggests. So when I did that, and my, my mind opened up, and I remember I had a Eureka Ue- moment. You know, one of those Eureka Ue- moments. And, and I was suddenly freed. I can remember when it happened. I think it was the 1st of September, 2007. <laughs> and on that day, I was looking at these records. I was on the tube. You called it the subway. We called it the tube. And I was on the tube, and I was looking at these records, and I would say, I want these records to speak to me. Instead of putting my narrative on these I want them to speak to me. And it occurred to me, and it's such a simple thing, It may see, it occurred to me that these people are not all slaves. And it may seem like a very simple thing for me to say this, but in fact, it's a major thing. And from once I was freed from that rhythm of having to try and construe all of these people into being enslaved people, then I could begin to see them, and see that, indeed, 98% of them were not enslaved people, and that these are people who were free. These were, these were oft, sometimes merchants, soldiers, um, uh, diplomats, dignitaries, um, uh, etc., etc., et living uh, in Tudor society, interacting with Tudor society. Uh, a, and I began to then see them for who they are. Instead of trying to pay for my prison loan,
1: that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like having that darling realization that okay, I've been looking at this through the wrong lens, so let me look at it in a different way. And as you said, it freed you and opened you up um, to see their lives as because there is that idea of okay, you would think yes, they are slaves. What else could they possibly be? But as you Absolutely. showed, there were a there were a lot of other things, as you say, diplomats, merchants— their lives were not tied to this idea of slavery, which is just kind of what you think of, people of African descent. Yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit about their lives? What were you able to uncover? Um, how did they live? Where did they live? Yeah. So, can I just prep it a little
0: more? Sorry, Katrina, I hope you don't mind. Sure. I just need to preface it a little more, just so a little more content. Um, once I had freed myself up I then became amenable to other narratives, which I had always been sort of study, um, and, and most of all, one of the strong narratives that had been sort of left out was the connection to the Moored population of Spain. Now, in the parish record, there are continuous references that make connections between the Africans that are living in England between 1485 to the 1660s. To the between this population and Spain. The three documents that I mentioned before make reference to the fact that the Spanish um, Anglo-Spanish War has a connection to the African Brethren. And sometimes the Africans who are um, mentioned in the record are also described as either coming from Spain or through Spain. Right. So this made me connect. To a field of study that I had been involved in, but I hadn't yet drawn together, which is the Moorish population of the Iberian Peninsula. The Moorish population of the Iberian Peninsula that had been there since the 8th century. The Moorish population that had been led by Gibraltar that the Rock of Gibraltar is named after. The Moorish population of diverse peoples that included North Africans, West Africans, and people from Asia Minor. That ruled large parts of the Iberian Peninsula from the 8th century all the way up until 1492. A presence that existed as a significant presence within the Iberian Peninsula, way up, in fact, until the 1660s. Yeah. So I began to then think, okay, began to understand, okay, that this population, which I had to a certain extent dismissed its connection was connected to the african president in england and it was connected not because i was saying so but because the people at the time were saying that so. they were saying look this African that is now in england was originally in spain this african uh, that is now living next door to me um well what you know from valencia Hence, their name simon valencia right or, or this african uh, uh that was living with now my neighbor um had previously been in the court in Madrid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the these English records were fantastically opening up a narrative not only about Africans in England but also Africans in Spain. And helping to dispel the notion that people some people may have that the Moorish population of Spain were not Africans, because there is a sort of idea that they were not Africans. Or that they did not contain a significant presence of dark-skinned Africans, um, because it was often another idea that, yes, they may have been African, but they weren't dark-skinned Africans. <laughs> Clearly, the English locals are telling us that that's not the case, um, that these people who were coming from Spain and Portugal were now living in England, who were part of the boys population in Spain and Portugal, and were being described as dark-skinned African did have their root in this Moorish population that was in Spain and Portugal. And this helped us to not only understand the Africans that were living in England, but also the Africans that were living in the Moorish population and the Africans that were part of the Moorish population that were the progenitors of cultures, civilization, the Renaissance, etc. This helped me understand that those Africans that were arriving in England weren't just people that were fresh off the boat who didn't understand the mores of European society. Some of them would be extraordinarily astute about European society because in some ways they were European as well. And they had European sensibility, as well as having, you know, obviously a visible African presence. And this helped me see that these people could then be very useful to new society because they were carrying values, languages, cultures, mores, um, fashions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then once I began to understand that, I began then to see why um, certain sections of English society would embrace this population, um, would want, this, want these people here, uh, would employ these people, um, would want them to play a part in society because they had skills that were useful, skills that were needed, um, ability that were in advance of their white counterpart. So, for example, a good indication of this is someone like John Blant. John Bradford played twice on the Westminster tournament role. As far as we can tell from research, and as far as my research needs, uh, it seems that he um, uh, came from the Iberian Peninsula. He may have arrived, and um, it's highly likely, with Catherine of Aradon, when Catherine of Aradon arrived from the Iberian Peninsula in 1502. Catherine of Aradon arrived, of course, to marry King Henry VIII. And, um, and John Blatt probably came with her. Um, he appears twice on the Westminster Tournament, or Westminster Tournament was created to celebrate the birth of um, Henry VIII's son, King Arthur, who did live very long, um, and uh, he appears in a very prominent position. He later um, asked for a raise um, uh, in payment, and he got it, um, and for a promotion, which he also got. Why did he get that promotion? Why did he get that raise? Because he was useful. Uh, why was he one of the king's and um, Because he represented something about fashion, more in culture um, that was common and popular in Europe. This is not mere conjecture. African musicians were in demand across Western Europe during the 15th and the early 16th century. Every day, in employing um, um uh, Henry the Seventh and Henry VIII, and employing John Blank, uh would be doing so because they wanted to fit European mores. Those European mores being led strongly by what was happening in Spain, while what was happening in the by the Habsburg and by what was happening in Portugal and the Netherlands, um, which was actually part of the Habsburg Empire, and within all of those places, Africans had prominent roles at part of the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the musician, entertainers um, of a polite society. And so John Bland was therefore important because he represented those European mores within English society. And that's why he had a prominent role. So he, his, his blackness, his Africanness, wouldn't be hidden, um, wouldn't be concealed, and in fact would be emphasized precisely because it fitted within European mores. This illustrates the massive jump in trajectory that I had to make over a 30-year period in order to understand what this one person's role was in judo society. And this kind of process I had to undergo with each of the entry that I focused on in this way.
1: I can't, that's so, that was a long process that you had to undergo, but... It was what needed to be done for you to get to the conclusions that you eventually found. It was important for you to go through that process to find everything and as much information as you could about John uh, and his life and his experiences during that time. Would you say, would you say as you were researching and it took like this over 30 year period, you know, yeah. words, was there things that you were shocked by are things that didn't surprise you? Yeah, I was shocked
0: by quite a lot at the beginning, um, <laughs> but then later on, not not so shocked. So, for example, if we take Henry Adderley Ghetto, so um, Henry Adderley Jetta appears in the records of a place called Hope. Hope is a small village in Worcestershire uh, a small landlocked village in worcestershire it's nowhere near the coast um uh, and uh, it's if it, it, um holt is a was a small village then and it's still a small village now henry anthony Jetta was baptized there 1596 united center when he first was baptized he is described as belonging to henry bromley which might suggest that he's in servitude or in some kind of lowly status Later he is described as the gardener of Henry Gromley, and then he's described as being um, a, a man of, of a profession um, of having a profession um, of gardening, not so not just so not just merely being a gardener, but being a professional um in in that profession. Um, Henry Anto then get after being baptized, then marries a woman. Called Presidia. Uh, he um, and Presidia then have six children. He has another child, a seventh child, called John Cuthbert, out of wedlock. And it's not clear when he had this child, whether he had the child before um, he met Presidia or during the relationship. But he certainly had an illegitimate child. Why do we know that he had an illegitimate child? because henry anthony Jetto wrote his own will that's right uh, and his will was dated 1627 this is a will written by an african you know more than uh, almost 400 years ago and um, by the time that he wrote his own will he was a man of property uh, a, a landed um man uh who had the status of being a yeoman a yeoman in 16th century english society was the highest rank of commoner. Yeoman had to have their own property, um, they had to have their own dwelling, they had to be what we call economically independent. So this is someone who would come from a lonely position of belonging to Henry Bromley, to now being a landed yeoman within 16th century English society, and someone that was literate, able to write his own will, um and and disposed of his own property. He died about a few years after writing his will, but and then Presidia um uh, wrote a second will which sort of had contributions from her late husband. This will is even more um uh even more revealing because it talks about the full extent of the family's property. It it lists their children and some of their grandchildren and some of their great-grandchildren, it it, it lists the extent of their property and it lists the disposal, how the property is supposed to be disposed of. In other words, how it is supposed to be apportioned. It is hugely revealing. These seven people, the seven um, direct descendants of Henry Anthony Getter, went on to have 32 grandchildren. Bear in mind that this is a very small village, Katrina. These 32 um, uh, grandchildren went on to have hundreds of great, great grandchildren. Their descendants populate the village of Hope. Many of the people that live in Hope today are direct descendants of this family. Even though they may not look like me or like you, Katrina, out of, uh, uh, and they are visibly white that ancestry is from this population i have met some of the people who are the direct descendants of henry anthony jetto now when i started to do this research i would never have imagined that i would be meeting people whose ancestors who have direct ancestors who are ancestors of these africans from the 16th century i would never imagine that, that that such a thing was possible but there we have it and I would never imagine that it would be in a rural area like Holt Worcestershire that I would find uh, people who were directly said, of this African presence from uh, the Tudor time.
1: That was, I would say, a welcome surprise. Uh, But I can imagine that's just like mind-boggling that in this rural area you have direct descendants descendants, and you can still find them there today. Wow, that's like... That is, that blows your mind. So what I want to ask you about is, and we talk about John's wife, Priscilla, but what about other Black women? How visible are they kind of in the record per se?
0: So we don't know if Priscilla was a woman of African descent. We don't know. Um, yes, we don't know. It's highly likely that she was not um, The reason why I say that is because if she was, it is likely that she would have been referred to in a similar way to Henry Anthony That's not always the case, but it's probable. So it's likely that what we had there was a relationship, a mixed relationship, a mixed relationship in which the men of Af- man of African descent had married a white English woman. These sorts of marriages were not illegal in Tudor times, and it appeared not frowned upon for most of English society. We do, however, have a comment by a person called George Brett um, who is not happy <laughs> about African men marrying white English women in 1588. And he tells us so in his, in his text called A True Discourse, where he said that there are many of these um, blackamoors uh, who are present in England who are marrying these white English women, who are having children that are black like the father and not white like the mother. And he, and he, he had a bit of a diatribe about it. So we know that um, these marriages did take place. And also we do know that African women married white English men uh, in children's society because we have records of these marriages too taking place and the children produced from such unions. Some of these African women, um, we don't know that they married or we don't know if they got married. We have for example, Mary Phyllis of Roscoe. Mary Phyllis of Roscoe is a young woman we first see her in the English record at the age of about 20 to 21. She appeared in the records of St. Butolf without Allgate. This was a parish in London, uh, central London, near where Tower Hamlets or Liverpool Street is today. In the 16th century, St. Butolf without Allgate was an ethnically diverse parish. It, it, it was one of the, sorry, my mistake, it was the largest parish in London. It was an enormous parish inside, an enormous parish, and that spanned all the way from central London all the way to the banks of London. Now, in the 16th century, London was mostly the part that is across from the river that is now called the City of London. It wasn't the greater London that we now know. So St. Gortop, without Hallgate, bordered the edge of London all the way to the centre, this was a very large parish, and in this parish, um, it was an extraordinarily ethnically diverse parish in the 16th century. Perhaps one of the most diverse parishes in the whole country. In this parish, the majority of the people were non-English born. The majority of the people that lived in this parish were non-English born. Um, they were French, um, people of French descent, Spanish, Portuguese, um people from what is now called Italy. And there were Africans from all of those places that I've just mentioned, as well as some Native Americans, and um, by the end of the 16th century, living in that parish, and even some people from, um, uh, from from what we now call the Arctic Inuit, people were living in this parish in the 16th century. It was an extraordinarily ethnically diverse parish. Um, uh, and it, 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 it had a very strong Jewish population, um, a strong Catholic population, even up in, in during the 16th century. It was also the center for cultures and the arts. It was where the theaters were. The theaters were on the bank side. Just looking onto this parish, it was the place where um, the excitement uh, and much of what we call is with society um, was located there. And Mary Phyllis of Roscoe was living in the midst of it, in, in that parish. So when we first find her in the Talk without all get records, She's about the age of 20 to 21. In those records, it describes how she had come to England with her father, Phyllis Savorosko. Her mother isn't mentioned. We don't know why her mother isn't mentioned. So she arrived in England 13 years before she's baptized. Probably, I think, fleeing persecution from the Iberian Peninsula and that she has as her heritage, part part of her heritage is that Moorish heritage from the Iberian Peninsula. In the baptism record, it describes how she had been in Tudorov without all gate for 13 years and had now decided to become a Christian. It described how her father was a basket maker and shovel maker. It described how she was part of the parish um, and had now chosen willingly and um, to become a member of that parish uh, and and that her choice had been entirely independent um, and that she had come to know Christ through her own choice. So this is a remarkable record. It's a very long record, far more complex than what I'm simplifying in the description. It's a remarkable record of a young woman of African descent who was chosen to become a Christian, who's part of a parish who would been more with her father. Her father has probably died, which is why he's not mentioned in the record. She'd been adopted by the parish, and now she had chosen to become a member of the parish. At her baptism, the, it was a course select where we see no not, um, people of note, local mayor, local aldermen. These people are all present at her baptism. Very unique, very um, uh, um, uh, unusual. To see this baptism being celebrated in this way. Why did it being celebrated? Because it's an adult baptism. And as an adult baptism, Mary Phyllis of um uh choice to become a member of the parish, a member of the church in this way, is considered to be of more potent force than someone who is merely born into the Christian religion. So this is this shows us a number of things. It shows us that that those people of African descent who chose to become part of parishes and chose to become part of their church would often be welcomed into their church if precisely because they were having these adult baptisms. It's the exact opposite of what we may have thought, that they would in some ways be segregated from their congregation. Having said that, I am fully aware that some people of African descent were strangers in um, 16th century society and were described as such. A stranger was a colloquial, generic term used to describe people who were not yet of the parish. However, there doesn't appear to be some sort of racial bar that prevented them moving from being strangers to becoming members of the parish. I have not found that um, Eddie Church saying, no, you cannot become a member of this parish because of your ethnicity. In fact, the opposite.
1: I mean, that's my problem, because you, you do have this perspective in your mind to say, okay, that Mary would not have been welcomed into the church, yet she was. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. We
0: have another example. We have uh, Maria Moriana. Uh, this is an earlier record. Um, during the period of time that we don't have lots of records, well, and this makes our record even more fantastic, Maria Moriani is a 1470 record, 1470. But this is a very early record. Um, and Maria Moriana uh, is in Southampton. And, uh, um, uh, and Maria Moriana um, is, is uh, a woman of African descent who her employer attempts to treat, attempts to treat her in a servile way. The tempts the genie in way, as if she were enslaved. Miria Moyana fights against this position with the help of the local community. Um. Uh. And um. Did I say Port? Or did I say Southampton? Did I say Southampton. in Port. Or did I say... Okay. Good. Let me start again. So that is like. Okay, so that I get mixed up in Port. That's Southampton. Okay. Let me start again. So we, we we have the record for a another woman. a Very interesting. Well, from an earlier period in time, from 1470. Her name is Maria Moriana. Now, this record is more than 500 years old. Maria and so Maria Moriana is living in Southampton. Southampton uh, is on the southeast coast uh, of England. It's a poor town. And Maria Moriana uh, is employed by a um, person called Filipposini. Filipposini attempts to treat Moriana in a stir-of-our-way, uh, and tries to get her effectively sort of pushed off, bought off, or sold off to somebody, as if she were enslaved. But her local community sort of rallied round her, and um, even though it's described in the record that she is a simple woman, and simple when in Verka common, we're not sure how simple she was, but she's described as being a simple woman, and she's also described as being an innocent, an innocent implies number one that she's not yet married, or, or, and number two that she is perhaps not very intelligent, or, and number three um, that she might actually have a low um, intelligence. We're not sure exactly. What, um, I'm not sure exactly what the word innocent means in this category, but it's certainly seen as if um, uh, she needed help in order to her the. Fate. She is described as an innocent about three or four times in the record. And her innocence means that Filipposini attempts to treat her in a servile manner. The matter goes to court. And we don't have the ratio know, the, the rule of the case, but we do have the legal reasoning from the court. The court said effectively in that legal reasoning that Filipposini cannot treat her in a manner in which she finds herself to be um, again. In other words, whatever status she has assumed is the status that the court will assume is her status. And I hope to use that tautology. But what effectively it's saying here is, if she said that she is not enslaved, then she is not enslaved. That's kind of what it's saying. And it, 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 it sort of underlines this notion, this concept which was present in English common law, that the status that you say you have is the status that you have, right? Now, this kind of notion is a thread that runs through English common law from the 15th into the 16th century um, and even into the early part of the 17th century until we get race laws implemented which strip away that status and put an ethnic inscription on it. So this is before all of that. The court also say that the question of her ethnicity does not determine her status, an important thing. Her status is determined by her status, <laughs> if you see what I mean, uh, and not by her ethnicity. This is made very important um, because he's actually saying, look, you can't use the law um, to make her into a slave simply because she's an African. That's what they say, in a different by term. So at uh, this case, with this African woman, is a fantastic case, you know. This is the case, before we get the American case of Elizabeth Key Grinstead, I don't know if you know of the case of Elizabeth Key Grinstead. Elizabeth Key Grinstead was an early um, um, uh, um, North American case um, uh, where a woman of African descent was able successfully to successfully petition that she was not enslaved simply because she was an African. Um, Elizabeth Key Grinstead, of course, is a, ancestor of people like johnny Depp, uh people like, who were direct um uh, um uh defendant of elizabeth p grinston and indeed are many people uh many of the people uh, are a part of the new england population even of the southern population of that old population who now live in america you have elizabeth keith vinston as an ancestor so this case is before that case. it's before the john congo case 18th century case um uh, where they were looking at the position of state. It's an early case. It, 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 it is perhaps one of the earliest cases that looks at ethnicity and status uh, within a Western construct. And it had this African woman petitioning for her right and the local community supporting her.
1: That is just so mind-boggling to conceptualize that this was happening during this early period. So I have to ask you, what would you want, let's say readers to take away from Henry Anthony Jetto, Mary Maria Madula, Mary Phyllis, Phyllis of Mariasco. what would you want them to take away from their lives or just what would you want them to understand about
0: mm-hmm.
1: blacks in Tudor England during this time? Okay.
0: The first thing is to, um, these people that, um, I found for me are living, they're living people and they were speaking to me and happily speaking to me for a very, very, very long time. And they continue to speak. Um, all I had to do was listen. All I had to do was listen. And once I began to listen, I could hear their story. I could see that the, um, Footnotes that they have left behind enabled me to establish a narrative about um their line. This history is a living history, and it's a history that we need to uncover. African history does not begin with slavery. It does not begin in enslavement. Even in the diaspora in North America and in Europe, it doesn't begin with slavery. We must recognize that enslavement does Form a part of our history, but it is not the beginning of our history. We have to understand what happened before the 18th century in Europe and in North America to understand what then happened in the 17th and the 18th century. And what it actually does is to make us happy to an extent or glad to an extent because, wow, we've got all this diverse and interesting history of these people that impacted in their societies and communities enough to shape their parts of european society not to shape their parts of uh, the society of the North hemisphere this is fantastic but then we have to ask ourselves another question what happened what happened to these people's status 150 years later what happened to african status 150 years later how did it come to be that we could have Henry ghetto? in holding worcestershire at the yeoman in the 16th century and yet 200 years later we find enslaved africa um, being employed um uh, and brought over um and britain becoming the largest slave trading nation in the world this should make us very very concerned about the idea of status and we should begin to understand that status is not a constant trajectory upward people's position and status and change and people who are unable to secure their status unable to secure their position and have their position removed from them people that are unable or unwilling to defend their rights and their position and have their rights taken away from them Africa in the diaspora in the 15th and the 16th century had considerable more movable position opportunity influence on European and North American societies than the applicants in the eighteenth century, even though they were fewer in number. We have to work out why this is. And we have to be concerned about how status can go up and down. We are not on a trajectory pathway um to enlightenment. Um and you can your rights, your status can Go down as well as go up.
1: I agree. That was a very powerful statement that you made a few moments ago. And thank you for joining me today, Professor Nubria. Readers, I implore you to go out and pick up a copy of England's Other Countrymen Black Tudor Society. I can assure you that you were not regret reading this book it is for academics it is for non-academics as well it is a thought-provoking well-researched book that helps us re-examine and reconceptualize Tudor England it is something that I hope that listeners will go out and learn more about the realities of Tudor England And how that is connected to the African presence during this time. And as Professor Newbier mentioned, to see that for people of African descent, it doesn't begin solely with slavery. There is another story which he was able to uncover. So please, I urge you go out and pick up a copy of England's other countrymen. It is on sale now.